My wife and I were reminiscing uh, not long ago about our childhood, and I didn't know this until this particular conversation. I don't know why it took uh, this long uh, for me to find this out. Um, but apparently, uh, when she was a little girl, they had a girl bicycle gang. And uh, would ride around their town. And, but this gang was comprised of just three people, her and her sister and a neighbor. And uh, they were quite a thing, I guess. And, and um, people in the community began to call them Charlie's Angels. Only people over 45 are laughing at that. <laughs> Everyone under 45 is now Googling Charlie's Angels. What is that? And um, they were identified as being uh, special agents of protection and agents against crime uh, in their neighborhood. So I quickly asked her, which one was she? Because <laughs> I wanted to know. And she was the one I thought she would be. Um, when I was growing up, we had a big wheel gang uh, in our neighborhood. I've told you that before. If you don't know what a big wheel is, you can Google that, kids. <laughs> and you'll find out it is a three-wheel plastic tricycle. I guess I just repeated myself, three-wheel and tricycle. Anyways, and uh, it sat low to the ground. And uh, we were more than three. We were usually 10 to 15 strong, and we had no problem riding in the middle of our road. Uh, we grew up on Marine Parkway here in Mentor on the Lake, Ohio, and uh, we were labeled as the Parkway Gang. And um, We graduated from tricycles to bicycles without training wheels, and uh, back then it was really, really cool to take a clothespin and a baseball card. Do you remember that? and uh, clip it to your, and so you made quite a noise coming down the street, clip it to your spokes, and that noise, which now to me is incredibly annoying, was kind of cool uh, <laughs> back then. And when you had 10 to 15 bikes strong, we were quite a force. Uh, back then, bicycle accessories were unique. Uh, back then, uh, bicycle headlamps uh, came out uh, they were not attractive at all, but they were the coolest thing back then. And all of us had to buy the same bicycle headlamp. Uh, it took, I believe, two um, size D batteries. And uh, some parents probably went bankrupt because we would often ride at night because you had to ride at night. And then in addition to the baseball cards making their noise and our headlamps uh, lightening uh, our way, We had rear taillights that became quite a thing. And uh, the Parkway Gang, if we had a cool name, we had to ride in style. And uh, it was our job. We took it upon ourselves to make it our job that everyone smaller than us would be, would be protected. And so we were the neighborhood protectors even though we were a gang. <laughs> that, was our, that was our identity. Uh, over time, we're were identified uh, in our person and because of our person and in our culture and in a number of different ways. Uh, but for those of you who are guests, I usually preach through a book. We're headed to a study in the Gospel of John here uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, but the Lord's laid on my heart over the last three years uh, 
uh, a few messages uh, that have just been burning in my soul, and I thought we could just address some of those messages before we dive back in. We just finished the book of Job. We'll head into the Gospel of John. Uh, we've spoken on a few topics in the month here of August. You can go back on our website and check those topics out. Uh, but today I would like to speak to you on the theology of identity. I think you heard good theology on identity in the hymns we sung this morning. I really hope you uh, noticed that in the words. Uh, you probably heard words of identity in Christ spoken by Pastor Steve in his prayer as he and several have been praying for an understanding of this morning's sermon. But I think we all would agree that in the last three years, our world, not just our country or our state or our area, uh, has found themselves in an identity crisis like this country hasn't seen, like our world hasn't seen in a long time. Right? Many Christians fell prey to the crisis of the last 36 months. Okay? And in that Crisis. We were temporarily distracted or unnecessarily distracted away from our identity in Christ and its purpose. So I'd like to, this week and then the next time we're together, I'd like to go through a, a theology of identity, if you will. Um, and then I'd like to discuss some titles of our identity in the New Testament. And I'd like to finish this morning with uh, the nature and practice and activity of our identity, those three things. And the next time we're together, we're going to look at one chapter in the New Testament, and we're going to tear it apart limb from limb, and we're going to look at the harmony of Christian identity uh, in our next sermon together. But what about our theology of identity? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Uh, all of God's created ones, all humans, are identified pre-fall in these verses, Genesis 1, 26 and following. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As humans, in God's image, part of that image is to want to know who we are, why we're here, what we're doing, where we're going, and how we're going to get there. I didn't know if you knew that or not, but whether you're a teenager or an adult, if you've asked yourself any one of those questions, you're asking yourself those questions because you are created in the image of God. God's image in man never lies dormant. It's always active. It's always rationalizing it's always demonstrating personality. It's always moralizing. It never lies dormant. And it always is typically in a relationship to who you are. Again, why you're here. What, are, what, what am I going to do? 
where am I going and, and, and how am I going to get there? God is a person. He knows who he is. He's completely self-aware. God has purpose. That purpose is quite intentional. He knows what he's doing with his divine plan for the universe. And he knows how it's being done. When sin came into the world, God's eternal decrees didn't change. God did not have an uh-oh moment or what am I going to do now when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. In his divine self-awareness, he had implemented a plan to bring all men back to himself that sin had separated from him. You see, he created us to bring glory to him and not even sin could dominate that plan. He created us to bring glory to him and to enjoy him forever. And he had one way to do that. God in eternity past has planned to have his only begotten unique son, full of grace and truth, come to earth to provide the opportunity for those affected by sin to once again to be restored to God's original intention, which was to bring glory to him. When we surrender ourselves to Christ, who is the express image of the glory of God, we repent from our sins and place our faith fully in the Lord Jesus, then in Christ we are able to once again figure out who we are, why are we here, what are we supposed to do, where are we going, and, and how are we going to get there. God in Christ allows the image of God in man to be restored to eternal purpose. We have this purpose in life. We, we have this goal in Christ in life. We have this clothesline, if you will, with life in Christ to bring glory to God as his children. And everything we do in life, we attempt to attach this divine purpose of bringing glory to God in our decisions and our actions and our words. So God's purpose becomes our purpose in Christ. His intentionality becomes ours. His passion is our passion because he's made us his children. Being the children of God in this world is our identity. Being made in the image of God, therefore, having talents given by God to us that may attach titles and occupations to us in time are all connected to our purpose in Christ. As image bearers, we'll have practical things we can do to enjoy God's purpose for us but all these things, from eating to drinking, or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. That's the pledge of allegiance of our heart towards God in Christ. That's our destiny. And our destiny is doing everything for eternal purpose unto God's glory. We live in a world saturated with passionate, intentional people, all who are made in the image of God, who are not yet children of God by faith in Christ. They're only super passionate, capable, and intentional because they're created by God. But until they surrender their lives to Christ, all their God-granted energy and intentionality and creativity is dominated by personal, temporal, and often ungodly purpose. But they can create a lot of distracting noise for us who are in Christ, who also have a God-given eternal purpose in him. 
especially if we're saved and walking with God, there's even some folks who don't know Christ made in his image that can create, do, and say some things that mirror good character and become quite appealing to us as those pursuing the character of God in Christ. We may buy their products, listen to their speeches, adopt their ideologies, and even tweet or post their words. We can become followers of unsaved men and women with good morals who merely live for temporal values. Herein lies the largest temptation for believers who walk with God and desire to be governed by His Spirit. We ask ourselves, could we fully give ourselves to the value-added messaging of unsaved good men and women, regardless what arena of thought or prof profession they exist? In a world that is so saturated with that which is simply seen by a glance at Scripture as dark and ungodly, in a world that is full of image bearers that exclusively seek that which is anti-God, would it not behoove us to embrace and fully support that which is of spiritual value and for the greater good? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Certainly, as we preached in Ecclesiastes two years ago, you must enjoy all that is good in our world. God has commanded it. He's given it for us to enjoy work, pleasure, leisure, family, God's family, God's people. Eat, drink, and be merry, we learn, for we don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. The wisdom of Solomon, though, along the way, we have an identity. Enjoy all those things, but he concludes the whole wisdom book by saying, what, only fear God and, and keep his commandments. The supporting of that which is good character in our world, our country, our cities, our towns, should be naturally done by the people of God. It is to be done with God's purpose, though. That is our identity in this world. We do all for the glory of God, which is always aligned with the person of God in Christ and his purpose in the world in which he came to. We studied good works in Titus a couple weeks ago. We learn that we are God's workmanship created under these good works, as Ephesians 2.10 says. And Titus highlighted for us the one good work that came from heaven, Christ himself, had purpose. For the grace of God came, remember 2.14, 2.11 to 14? The grace of God came and has appeared to all men, teaching us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in our time. So even though we are born in a world without Christ, we're born again in that same world who is without Christ. And these folks without Christ as image bearers can do and, 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 and actively perform good things. And we can align ourselves with those unsaved image bearers who do good things. And even as we do that, we have to make sure that aligning ourselves with those good things, with good unsaved people, doesn't distract us from eternal purpose. Our good works of God are the transformed deeds we do among one another and the body, demonstrating a change in our lives that only the grace of God can bring. And then those quality deeds we take to a lost and dying world so that they might see Christ in us. We have an identity and he's Christ Jesus our Lord and we have a purpose and it's his. 
It's always to live his children, his children with his purpose. And I would say for good people like you all, that's probably the hardest thing in which we strive to maintain direction and balance in our own lives. So many here are talented of God in various ways. All are spiritually gifted of God for the strengthening of the church to do the mission of Christ. Your talent and your passion can be absorbed so easily in our world that is craving your work ethic and your ability. And the same world that craves your talent and your work ethic may or may not appreciate your spiritual ethic. And therein lies the test of our living faith, our identity of eternal purpose, if you will. When you're appreciated and even awarded for your talent and your work ethic, and those you've grown closer with, still say no to your Jesus. Will we stay on mission? As those who with passion identify with Christ and, and his purpose. All of our lives we battle with identity and purpose. Because we may battle with understanding what it means to have our primary identity and purpose be that of Christ's. I get that. One of the hardest things in life for me is to maintain vision of eternal purpose even when I'm seeking to enjoy what Ecclesiastes demands that I enjoy. I sympathize with you on all of that. But this is the calling of our identity in Christ. Life can be distracting even in the church let alone in the world, working with high-quality, common-grace people. But we strive to recall identity of person and purpose. And this is the spirit-filled discipline of our lives. It's really the... theology of our identity as image-bearers. I'd like to consider next our identity by spiritual title in the scriptures. When we were little kids, late elementary, you know, we were about um, oh, a few years apart. I think four to five years separates me from my older sister, and um, I think 18 months separates me from my brother John. And when we were late elementary, my sister was headed into middle school. Uh, my dad sat us down and had a conversation with us. He said, I'm going to predict for you uh, that kids are going to make fun of you a lot, and I'm going to tell you why. And uh, <laughs> it, was kind of a, it was kind of an interesting conversation because we really didn't really know how to handle it, but then when we got in the fray of it, we, we understood. He said, uh, I'm going to start to tell you some things that Kids called me because of my last name. Last name's Potter. Already some of you who were of the more creative elementary and junior high types, you're already run, your minds are already running to what kind of nip, nicknames you could call a kid with the last name Potter. He said they're going to come early and they're going to come often. Uh, and he said you're going to have to learn to laugh so you don't fight. That was hard. I can remember. He started, so we wrote them down. And they all came true. He said, these are the names you're going to be called. He said, Pot, Pothead, Pooter, Poot, Poo, 
Potterski, Putski, and I could go on and on. I have been called. High school friends texted me this morning and said, Pooh, I'm praying for you. <laughs> I, I, I can't lie. And uh, his daughter's our secretary now. <laughs> so apparently, for some, these are terms of endearment, and for others, they're uh, words of enemies. I don't know. I suppose... We all have probably had nicknames based on our last names or something unique about our personhood. Uh, some of them were edifying, most of them probably weren't. But you know, by spiritual title alone in the scriptures, you can find your identity. We can find our identity and sense of who I am, why I'm here, what I'm to be doing, how I'm supposed to do it, just in the titles. Can I read a few of those? Terms of endearment, titles of endearment that we are called in the scriptures. It's a long list. The length of this list should really tell us about the person of our identity and the purpose of our identity. You're called beloved. Beloved children, brethren, holy ones. God's children, his adopted ones, his little ones, his little lambs, his little stones, his chosen race, a royal priesthood. You're called Christians. Redeemed of the Lord, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, ambassadors, branches in Christ, citizens of heaven, disciples, elect ones of God, chosen instruments, servants and slaves of Christ, friends of Christ, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, fellow citizens of God's household, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, heirs according to the promise, instruments, jewels, in God's sight, kings, lights, sons of light, called the light of the world, sons of the day, God's workmanship, sons of the resurrection, city set on a hill that cannot be hid, members of Christ's body, new creatures in Christ, pilgrims, strangers, bondservants of God, faithful brethren, the faithful, redeemed ones, peculiar ones, stewards, saints, priests, sons of Zion, friends of God, and fishers of men. That's you in Christ. Just those titles, just those names, I think they would give all of us a sense of understanding identity in person and exclusive identity in purpose. Finally today, let's consider the nature and activity of our spiritual identity. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3. From Genesis 1 over to Galatians chapter 3. For those of you that know your Bibles well, the church of Galatia was undergoing an, an intense identity crisis. Those who had been born again in Christ, in Christ alone apart from works of the law, were again being dragged back into, identify with good works as necessary for their salvation apart from the exclusive good work of Christ. Paul steps in, rebukes them, and has some reminders for them here about how they were all made one in Christ. And I think the words of Galatians 3, beginning in verse 25, are a quite powerful reminder for us in relationship to the nature of our identity in him and our purpose. 
Paul says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. That would be the tutor of the Old Testament law. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then are you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. It's not difficult at all in Paul's simple wording here for us to understand that we are subject to Christ because we have been baptized into him. We are subject to him and his purpose because we have been baptized into him. Many enjoying one baptism into one person. Right? One baptism into one person who had one purpose. One purpose. With Paul's words in mind, let's go over to John chapter 1, which we'll be looking at in a few weeks from now when we dive into the book study in John. John chapter 1. And let's look at John's words in relationship to the nature and purpose of our identity in Christ. Begin reading in, in verse number 9. Here's the nature of identity in real personhood. There was the true light, that's Jesus Christ, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was, was made through him, and the world did not know him. And he came into his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And look at the qualification of verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We looked at the nature of our conversion when we looked at good works in the book of Titus a couple weeks ago. I'm not here to rehearse that again this morning, but it's very, very clear here that there is one who is divinely perfect and active seeking to quicken your dead soul unto life. And that's God. And he did so, and he expressed his desire by sending his son for the world to see. The world that Christ had created has now been introduced to Christ. God in flesh, on the stage for the whole world to observe. And the created world rejects him, his own people reject him but for the few that would receive him. He gave them the authority to be called his children. But that authority was granted to us because 
saving faith is a gift that was granted to us by God. It's very, very clear here that your conversion experience, my salvation experience in Christ did not come from my heritage. Know what it says here? It did not come from blood. And it did not come from the will of man. I find it really interesting that the Apostle John, under inspiration, kind of covers um, identity crisis issues in one verse. Global identity crisis issues in one verse. For us as believers. You see, in the Eastern world, and it still is that way to this day, if you travel over to the Middle East, um, we did that once with my family, and it, it, was, it was shocking to realize how much stock families put in their family history and in their family heritage. Right? You are whose son? You are whose grandson? Right? You are who? You're identified by blood. Right? And if your family tree is full of powerful people, you're probably a wealthy person. And if not, you're probably a modern-day serf. It was interesting to me in the countries that we visited in the Middle East, there was no middle class. There's like super, super wealthy, and it was all inherited wealth, or those who were completely impoverished, who had no transportation, and we saw 40, 50, 60 buses in a row full of workers being bused to their place of work to work to be bused home. Some of these people were from foreign countries, that were shipped into this particular country so that they could at least find work because the country they came from had no work and every cent that they made in Abu Dhabi, they would ship back to their family who had nothing. But just two classes. You were by blood something of importance or by blood something of relative unimportance. unimportance. But then it says here, born not of the by blood but what does it say nor of the will of man i think while the phrase about blood covers the eastern world i think by the will of man covers the whole western hemisphere it's different in our country isn't it it's different not just in our country but in the western world in the western world your identity is found by your own will by you doing you and mercy that's truer today than it was even a year ago from the age of enlightenment to the industrial age to a postmodern era to the present educational models and philosophies have taught us to be us you do you you find your truth being you is the only way you explain yourself and expect others to adapt to you and your purpose and you brand you. Sound familiar? Any of it? That's the will of man. That's the will of man. That's where the world identity is found. It's either found in your blood, your family heritage, or it's found in you achieving you. You defining you. You living you. You being the center of your own universe. But when God interfaces with your fallen nature and the Spirit of God does His work with omnipotent divine interruption. He changes that identity crisis in which we live. 
whether you're from the east or from the west. And the very nature of conversion places us into Christ, gives us the authority to be called a child of God, and in him alone we find the reason why we're even woke up and are breathing this morning. God in Christ has granted you a new and final identity. Your heavenly father has written the birth certificate. Matthew 16, verses 15 to 17, Christ asks his his disciples to tell him who he is. Peter answers correctly, and Jesus tells him why. You did not come by this realization of your own who I am but my father in heaven has granted it to you Peter later on is glad to identify with Christ and his body of believers and he even writes so if you go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 go to the right in your scriptures 1 Peter chapter 2 and let's look at Peter's words he, he understood what had been granted to him he understood imperfectly so, right? We know the life of Peter. It mirrors mirrors many of our lives. Born again, but boy, quite a process in in Christ-likeness and growth, right? But even this impassioned, impetuous, now spirit-indwelt, spirit-governed man over time was tutored by the Spirit of God, what it meant to have an exclusive identity in Christ and and to live for his purpose, and he even writes so, If you look at verse 9 of chapter 2, he calls these saints spread abroad by persecution in Asia and Asia Minor, for you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, for this purpose, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people. Interesting, isn't it? Speaking to primarily Jewish people. You once were not a people. You were an elect nation, but you were not a spiritual people with spiritual purpose. In Christ, you're a people. And you have a name. You're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That's what religious people outside of Christ who are not a people do. They're a people, they're created in God's image, but we're talking about a spiritual person versus an image bearer who doesn't know Christ. No disrespect to image bearers who don't know the Lord. This is just a compare contrast. Remember, so we have no gospel unless we have a changed life. When you own Christ, you begin to own his life and the way he lived. He changes you. So we're to abstain from these things, which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Gentiles here are those who just don't know Jesus. So that in the thing in which they slander you, your gospel as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, Come to glorify God in the day of visitation. That's our eternal purpose. 
lived out through a changed life that was brought to us by being born again and given the authority to call God's child. You are a unique and holy people. You are rare, but recreated in Christ to do the will of the Father, both in your pursuit of Christ's likeness as to his character and then the purpose of Christ under great commission purposes. So that's briefly the nature of our identity and purpose that comes with it. Now let's close with something this morning that's in relationship to the harmony of our identity. The next time we're together, we're going to um, look at one text, and it's going to be Colossians chapter 3. We preached through Colossians years ago on a Sunday morning. We're going to revisit that text and we're going to piece that apart in relationship to the particulars of the harmony of our identity. How does this identity live out in unity among a local church body? But if you go over to Colossians chapter 3, I'll just give you a bird's eye view. Based on three verbs beginning in chapter 2 and the last one at the beginning of chapter 3 where we can see clearly in preparation for the next time we're together that, that our identity is exclusively in Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. If you go down to verse 20 of chapter 2, there's another verb in relationship to our identity with Christ. He says, you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle or do not taste or do not touch these religious activities that are being added back to the sufficiency of Christ? Which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And the final verb here that relates us with Christ is seen in verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is who, who is our life is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. You've received Christ. You've died with Christ. You've been raised up with Christ. And it has changed your whole way of living and worshiping. It's a comprehensive saturation of person and purpose. The world just lives to distract us away from that person and his purpose. There are so many identity voices seeking to proselytize you into their own exclusive messaging, my friend. These identity preachers of our time desire you to pledge allegiance to the will of man 
alongside of or instead of the will of God that comes along with your identity in Christ. I would ask you to prayerfully navigate these turbulent waters of national and global identity crises. There are ways that I seek to make sure that we stay balanced in this way as a pastor and as husband and father of my own home. As we stated earlier in today's message, certainly there are quality events, activities, and even people to associate with in today's world. And many of you are doing this through your occupations or even extracurricular opportunities, building redemptive relationships. Good for you. But as you're excelling in these special interests or in your occupation, carefully from time to time, take inventory of your own eternal purpose as you involve yourself with both. We can so subtly be distracted away from the why of your born-again reality. The Great Commission cause of our lives should never become expendable due to the oversaturation of good and quality activities we enjoy that God's given to us. Second, be ever so careful to not allow the failures of your past or present to become your exclusive identity. And be ever so careful to not allow your, excess, your successes to do the same. When you are identified in Christ, and I would say for teenagers and young adults and young parents, this is probably the biggest identity crisis you endure. Because we make most of our mistakes when we're youth. Right? And then sometimes we live through the consequences of those in older adulthood. But sometimes our greatest achievements are achieved in our youth too and we can ride that magic carpet for a while but you have to remember how God views you as his child God is not applauding you the more you succeed and he's not frowning upon you the more you fail God doesn't measure your existence by your successes or your failures so why are you doing the same thing identifying yourself with your successes or failures at the expense of identifying yourself with Christ and his eternal purpose is you falling prey to the temptation of the wicked one. I made that mistake. How in the world could I ever be a witness for Christ again? I can't believe I did that. There's no way I could ever pick up a Bible and sit down and disciple someone ever again. There's just no way. Or you succeed so well. Right? You kind of congregate with those who succeed. You don't have much time for people who are a little bit behind you or way far behind you. It's kind of like, well, you all need to catch up to me and to us who succeed. And you allow your success to become your identity and you still attach Jesus to that success, but in the midst of it, when people think of you, they think more of your success than they do your gospel witness. Be careful. For those of you who are still broken hard over sin, remember there's a godly guilt and an ungodly guilt. The godly guilt that comes as soon as you sin and you know it. Confess, forsake, and move on. If you feel guilty after that, that's not God's guilt. Accept your forgiveness in Christ. He already died for that sin. 
He's already forgotten that sin and can remember it no more. My Bible tells me as soon as it's confessed and left, move on, get up, let's go together. Third, be ever so careful to not allow how God made you to be your identity. You are all fearfully and wonderfully made, but I'm deeply concerned for the kids and youth of our time. So much imbalanced emphasis have been placed on the human body in our culture, and it's pretty common in every culture since the fall. We all, we've all heard of body shaming in our time, how horrible it is when that happens to some. I hope as believers we're never involved with that. And if you have been, you need to go back and make some apologies and ask for some forgiveness. I'm equally concerned with what our kids think of themselves and the body God's given them. So many are dissatisfied with how God uniquely and simply created them. And today, kids are always placing alongside their own look pictures and videos of what the world describes as beautiful and successful. And people, we all know this is happening thousands of hours per month for our kids. This is one of the biggest reasons I feel, as a pastor, why the suicide rates are so high among our youth these days. They're trying to find their identity in what the world calls good or good-looking or successful. They're trying to find their identity in the will of man. They haven't found it in their blood, right? What do I have to be proud of in my home? These kids are being raised by aunts, uncles, many of them, and, and grandparents in some situations. And where's my mom and dad who know the Lord in my home that are training me to live Christ-like lives? Most kids don't have that. And so they're searching all their lives for some kind of an identity. And when they find it, they think they have it, and they realize they don't have it because they're allowing the person or group or thing they identify with to tell them whether they belong or not. They're constantly living in confusion and disappointment. And Christian kids can do the same thing and fall into the same trap. Young married couples can fall into the same trap as well. Where do we find our way forward? We find our way forward in Christ, in Christ alone. We find our way forward in aligning ourselves not with just his, with his person, but with his purpose. Regardless how the world describes the, the measure or measures your intellect or describes your body shape or describes who you're not or, or who you are, that's by the will of man. How does God describe you? You are his creation. When you stand in front of a mirror, that's his beautiful act. And the way he made you, there are only people that you can reach for Christ by the way he made you that I could never reach. None of the rest of us could ever reach. If we get distracted by identifying by the will of man, you could possibly miss God's will for you.
in Christ. You are beautiful in Him. Period. Don't listen to the screamers and preachers of the world. Don't. You're beautiful in Him. And He gives you divine purpose to reach other image bearers for Him exactly the way you're made. And believe you me, if you don't like the way you look or the way God created you, the enemy speaks even louder in the ears of those who the world calls good-looking or vocationally or athletically successful. Whether you have kids in athletics or music or any vocation, and, and they're really good at what they do, and they're what the world calls, oh, that's a good-looking kid. You combine that with their success in their vocation or in their sport, and let me tell you what, the screaming gets even louder in those years. The potential for distractions much greater. But I understand these are two extremes. But that's still being preached to by the will of man. The will of God is found in Christ. We pull ourselves back from those extremes to find our identity in him and purpose in him. And finally, as I close, the next application, my friends, I, I hope is taken with the spirit it's intended to be given, taken. Inside this body, please don't allow your spiritual gifting to become your exclusive identity. Oh, how Satan loves to take that which God has done and pervert it. He's been doing that since the day Adam and Eve fell in the garden. You can live out your spiritual gifting in the local church and lose your sense of identity and eternal purpose. Did you know that? Can you absorb that just for a moment? Can you give your heart and head some space to meditate on that? You can live out your gifting in the local church and still lose your sense of identity and eternal purpose. Since our identity is Christ and him alone, all who are in Christ must be used for eternal purpose. Remember, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers are all going to spend somewhere forever. Keep your eyes lifted up into the fields because they're white into harvest. There's plenty of churches closing around our world and they're full of incredibly gifted saints who have become distracted of Satan to focus on their gift at the expense of unity with the church and its eternal purpose. Write it down a hundred times. It's happening everywhere. May it never happen here. God doesn't need your gift. He can take your gift out of this world in a moment just like he brought it into this world the moment you were born again. Do you understand that? I need to understand that. God doesn't need you and me to get his work done. He doesn't need you. It was going along swimmingly without you. It'll go along swimmingly without you. Period. It's interesting, something so divine and so powerful that God gives us 
we can find our identity in something that God gave us as a spiritual gift and get distracted from the main gift, Jesus Christ, and his purpose. Your gift is just a gift. It's just a gift. It's God's to be stewarded by you, but never at the expense of eternal purpose. Shame on us if we allow our identity identity to build up a pride in us and, and make us think that we're of some greater value to the flock than another believer in the flock. Me having a pastor teacher gift makes me of no more value than anyone in this room. Do you understand that? Do you know how many times I wish I could just preach from the back row and not even be up to be up this bohemian box? All this attention up here? Bunk on the attention, folks. Glory to God. And I don't ever want to practice a gift and lose sight of my eternal purpose. Your gift of mercy is no more or less valuable than a teaching or pastor-teacher gift. Do you understand that? No more or less valuable. We're just dudes and dudettes with gifts. There's no heroes in the church. Christ is the hero of the church. His purpose is the plan for the hero of the hero for his little ones. Folks, let's get a grip. For the majority of you, you get the grip. Some don't. The only reason you matter to God is because Christ matters to God. And he's your savior. He's our identity. Knowing we're simply citizens of heaven as we endure through life, enjoying the temporary ID tags, whether it be Charlie's Angels or (laughs) the Parkway Gang or mom or dad or manager or vice president of sales or CEO or customer service representative or president, vice president of whatever. Let's find our identity in a person and his purpose because we're all aliens we're all pilgrims here for a short time to live one why let's pray together father in heaven i love you we love you we are broken sinners as we sang this morning only mended by your divine grace without christ we're nothing without his purpose we're aimless we enjoy all these wonderful things you've given to us as image bearers and all these wonderful gifts and talents help us lord to enjoy all these good things and attach ourselves to that which is good and do good works in our community but lord may we never be distracted as holy ones pursuing holiness in christ likeness in a in a dying dark world help us never to lose focus as we enjoy all these things from the why of our existence We love you, Lord. May our hearts stay tender. May my heart, most of all, stay tender to what your word has to say in relationship to this topic. In Christ's name, amen.